Hello and welcome to Neuroscience Podcast number two with Dr. Phil. Hi. And me, Sam Webster. Um, this week, Phil's going to tell me about food. Well, okay, it's going to be the neurobiology of appetite regulation, I should think. But We can talk about food. It's, it's about food as far as I'm concerned. So what are we going to talk about, Phil? We're going to talk about those parts of the brain that control when you're hungry, why you're hungry, what happens when you eat to satiate your hunger, Uh huh. and then a little bit about what goes on in those parts of the brain when uh, people become obese and why that might be. Are you going to talk about biochemistry, like gut stuff, or is this all neuro stuff? This is all neuro stuff. Oh, I'm sure okay. there are persons far more qualified than I to tell you all about the gut. Though we will talk, when we talk about satiety, we'll talk about some feedback from the gut to the brain. Okay. Where do you want to start? All right. So where we'll, we'll start with the basic idea of body weight. Now, I would guess, uh, as a trained athlete, your body weight hasn't changed a great deal. Well, when I'm being athletic, it yeah, it's at a certain weight. And when I'm not being athletic, like when I was finishing my PhD and my degree, I was unathletic and it was at a different point. But it was but, at a point, though. It didn't. Yeah, it didn't really shift much, except oh. when I was eating a lot of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> cheese will do it for you, yeah. Yeah, no, there are periods in my life where I'm working really hard, I'm not doing any exercise, I'm trying to get something finished, and this is something that takes maybe a year or so. Uh, and in, my, in all my graduation photos, I'm fat. <laughs> I've seen those photos, and I wouldn't call you fat. You're just yeah. carrying a few more pounds than you are now. Fat relative to what I, was, what I am now. So that's probably around, yeah, that, that weight was around 11 and a half stone, something like that. And that oh. was a, after the age of about 25, that was... Well, after the age of about 21, 22, that was pretty standard weight for me, yeah. Oh. When I'm training, my, my kind of my standard weight is around... Um. Yeah, sixty-four, sixty-five kilos. When I'm race weight, I get down. Yeah, kilos. 63, 62. Right? European, honestly. Sorry, ten. What? Sixty. Oh, hundred and forty pounds. I it's see. About ten stone, isn't it? So, about hundred. Yeah, hundred and forty, hundred and forty-four pounds, something like that. Well, speaking of someone who doesn't train and could not be in any way described as an athlete, my weight is also still fairly stable. I'm. I probably shouldn't reveal what it is on the air. It's <laughs> politically sensitive. Um, Athletes are a bit weight obsessed. It's true. I'm I'm not really weight obsessed, and I can't really tell you what it is because I'm not entirely sure. But uh, it hasn't changed a great deal over the years, and most people's weight doesn't. So even when they 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 go like on a a, a the diet, which usually only lasts a short period. So when most people go on a diet, they obviously they lose weight, but right. over well, time if they do it properly. Yes, and uh, but over time, generally, what happens is they put the weight back on. They do, yeah, and. People even who, who attempt to force feed themselves to gain weight, persons who may think that they don't carry enough weight or people that gain weight, I don't know, for acting roles or something, mm. even they find that after they've stopped force feeding themselves, their weight returns to what we call a set point. Well, quite, quite naturally. Naturally. Wow. Yes. So it's sort of probably a very uh, reasonable place to start, this concept of set point, that most people's weight is fairly fixed over time. Mm. Uh, and this is true of most mammals, actually. And... In humans, there is obviously, as we approach our, our middle years, a slight upward drift. But by and large, your weight stays at uh, fixed at a set point. Okay, so if that's the case then, so if my weight is kind of uh, settled, then it's my brain that's telling me when I'm hungry, when I'm full, that sort of thing, when I want to eat and so on. Yes. I don't think about it too much. I think it's, about it a bit more now because I try and eat, say, regularly during the day and i'm trying to like prepare myself for the next training session but generally it's my brain telling me when i'm hungry yes so what's is. going on then 
Well, it's it's uh, it's funny you should say that. Actually, you don't think about it too much because it is. It's a very old part of your brain that is most important for control of appetite. And it's, ah, and it's that we'll spend a, a little while talking about. The most important part of your brain that tells you you're hungry to start eating and to stop eating is the hypothalamus. Ah, okay. I know where that is. You do know where that is. So why don't you tell us where that is? Because that's point, actually very important. I could point to it. Uh-huh. So the hypothalamus is, is kind of linking between the thalamus and the pituitary gland. It's in that region there, right? Right. Hey! Yeah, pretty much. Score one. So it, as an anatomist, I'm sure you're aware of the basic concept in neuroanatomy that the brain has through evolution, got more and more complex, in mammals at least, yeah. by sticking bits on the outside. Yeah. So those bits of the brain that are in the middle and at the bottom yeah. are generally, in evolutionary terms, pretty old. So we're talking about midbrain and hindbrain. Is that right? Yeah, and e- even lower down than that, actually. So we think about the brainstem, yeah. which is in lower vertebrae, it's pretty much all they've got. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can think of neuroanatomy and the structure of the brain in terms of um, in terms of trying to understand the function of a particular part of the brain if you think about in, where it is in relation to say the brainstem right, the further away it is the more evolutionarily recent it is and therefore oh. it's more likely to control behaviors that that are more evolutionarily recent whereas those parts of the brain that are at the center and at the base like the hypothalamus yeah. the brainstem control those behaviors that we have in common with things like fish like sleeping like, well, maybe, no. not, maybe not even sleeping, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Certainly eating. Okay. Uh, most, everything has to eat in some form or another. So those parts of our brain that control eating are evolutionarily very old and thus located at the base and center of our brain. Whereas oh. fish don't do complex mathematics and uh, thus don't have a cortex, for example. I see. So... The hypothalamus is is the key part uh, of the brain involved in controlling hunger. It also controls things like thirst, regulates body temperature, and is a very, oh, I don't know what the English pronunciation is, heterogeneous? Yeah, heterogeneous, heterogeneous. Heterogeneous. Very mixed. People say both. Heterogeneous uh, part of the brain. It's got lots of different nuclei that do lots of different things, and... It's another important point, actually, for basic neuroscience. When we talk about nuclei in terms of anatomy, we're talking about collections of neurons with similar properties or similar functions rather than a nucleus of a cell. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so lots of different bits of the hypothalamus. And the three most important parts that we're going to talk about today are the lateral hypothalamus, the ventromedial hypothalamus, and the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. Okay, I've heard of the arcuate nucleus, but I didn't know there were multiple parts of the hypothalamus. Oh, God, it gets worse. Yes, the hypothalamus is very heterogeneous. There are lots of different bits, and they all do, in many ways, different things. Mm, But they're all very basic, keeping with our theme. So uh, so are you hungry right now? I'm a bit peckish. I've got a cup of tea, uh, but yeah, I could do with a snack. Do with a snack? What time is it? Yeah, it's coming to 11. Yeah, 11 is, 11 is. Okay, well... So right now, in that vast, very capable brain of yours, <laughs> yeah. your lateral hypothalamus right. is active. Yeah, I can feel it. Okay, it is is telling you to go and eat something. Yeah, feeling you can feel that. It? Feeling yeah. that, yeah. yeah. Were you to eat something, which yeah. if you're lucky, maybe we'll let you do later on, <laughs> um, there would be an increase in your blood glucose level 
and that would turn on your ventromedial hypothalamus. Right. And that is, uh, in many ways, a satiety center. It's part of the brain that controls satiety. Okay. okay. So when your, when your ventromedial hypothalamus comes on, that says, okay, you've had enough. Stop yeah. eating. Right. Um, and over time, your blood glucose levels go down. Those decrease in blood glucose levels are picked up by a lateral hypothalamus, which turns on and tells you to go and eat, and the whole cycle continues. Uh, okay, okay. So that's very simplified, very simply, grossly simplified, but nevertheless functionally usefully simplified the basic feeding circuit that operates in the hypothalamus. Now... Is it as simple as that? Is it as simple as just responding to glucose? Was there another layer well, on top of that? Certainly, at this stage in our uh, in our neurobiology education, that that will that's yeah, that's really all we need to worry about. We'll come on to a few other parts of the brain a bit later on. Okay. Um, those two parts of the brain, though, the lateral hypothalamus and ventromedial hypothalamus, are useful in demonstrating this concept of set point though. If we damage the lateral hypothalamus, mm. okay, so the lateral hypothalamus makes you hungry. Yeah. Okay, if we damage the lateral hypothalamus experimentally in animals, then um, those animals show a decrease in weight. They have like a loss of appetite. They don't, not interested in eating or? Uh, they're just, yeah, they're hungry. Should we say they're hungry less? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, but, all that really happens is they drop down to a different set point. Oh, really? And then they yeah. maintain that? And then they maintain a different set point. Huh. Okay, so you damage the lateral hypothalamus, body weight goes down, and but if you then put those animals on a diet or you force feed them, their weight will go up and down, Yeah. but it all will still return to a set point. It's just that that set point is now lower than it was when their lateral hypothalamus was intact. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so the natural question, obviously. Well, what determines the set point? I mean, is the is the brain trying to store fat for a rainy day, or is it trying to? Is it is is there another level of? Is it trying to set how much you weight, like a bear hibernating or something? Yes, I think in terms of the hypothalamus, the key thing is that is that those regions of the brain receive information that says how much body fat you're carrying. Right. Okay. So, and they then uh, regulate your body weight around the set point. Okay. So if your body body fat goes up, then they will, um, you know, the operation or the function of those regions will be altered accordingly and your body weight will be dropped. And if your body fat goes down, then your lateral hypothalamus will become more active and your uh, energy intake will go up. So there is another layer of control there then? There is, yes. So they basically they receive information, you know, from the outside world, from the the less interesting and important parts of the body, about how much body fat there is. Yeah, and they do this through uh, a mechanism or through a concept of adiposity. Adiposity being simply how much body fat you have. Right. Okay. So there are hormones that circulate in your blood, and which then interact. Uh, with various parts of your brain that are called adipostats. Oh, really? Yes. They, the amount of those is directly proportional to how much body fat you have. Hey, that's clever. So as a, a trim, lean, athletic type such as yourself is not going to have uh, 
a great deal of these adipostats, whereas huh. someone who's uh, you know carrying a few extra pounds around the edges, such as myself, um, may have a little bit more. Interesting. So the brain's going to respond differently depending upon the concentration of those adipostats floating in the blood. Exactly. Ah. So, so does my body want me, because if I, if I haven't got many adipostats floating around, does my body want me to store more fat? Um, no, I th- <clears throat> no. I mean, your your body weight is at its set point. Yeah. And your adipostat concentrations will be uh, adjusted according to your body fat. And in most normal people who don't run 450 miles every day, um, yeah. their weight will stay at that set point determined by... Um, you know, their hypothalamus and their levels of, of adipostats. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about the most important adipostat, which yep. is leptin. Right. Now, leptin was discovered quite by chance uh, in some fat mice. Mm. It uh, randomly arose in a mouse breeding facility, and they didn't have the OB gene, which was subsequently found to encode leptin, and these mouse, mice ate continuously and were grossly obese. Mm. And Did they get um, osteoarthritis? <laughs> Sorry, no more cartilage. Don't have to answer that question. I <laughs> am not in a position to comment about their um, connective tissue status. Fat mice are usually good models for osteoarthritis. Anyway, sorry, back to topic. Um, Fat mice. Yeah. So anyway, a whole lot of research later discovered that leptin was the key thing. Uh the amount of leptin you have directly in proportion to your body fat is actually synthesized in adipose tissue. Right, makes among sense. Among other places. And uh, the more weight you put on, the more leptin you have, and your hypothalamus adjusts your energy intake accordingly. Okay. okay so that leptin is the principal means by which the hypothalamus receives the information about ah. how much you weigh. Okay, yeah, I'm starting to see this makes sense. If you've, if, you, if you've got a fair bit of fat and you're above your set point, you don't really need to take more energy in because you've got energy stored up. Exactly. Got it. And if you're a little bit low on oh. fat, vice versa, right. take a bit more energy. Ah, get in there. Okay. Yeah. Right, right. Very straightforward. All right, so what leptin does is signal to the hypothalamus what's going on, how much body fat you've got. And... It acts primarily in the third important region of the hypothalamus we're going to talk about today, which is the arcuate nucleus. The arcuate nucleus. Yes. Mm, Okay. So when you have a lot of leptin, this uh, is detected by the arcuate nucleus and causes the production of what we call anorexigenic peptides. Ah, yeah. Things like uh, cocaine and amphetamine-related transcript, which has nothing to do with, well was discovered by people doing experiments with cocaine and amphetamine, but for our purposes is, is uh, merely an appetite-relating peptide, an anorexigenic peptide, and alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone. Right. And what these do is uh, they are produced by the arcuate nucleus and released onto the lateral hypothalamus, and they tell the hyper- lateral hypothalamus, all right, We've got a bit of extra body fat. Maybe we shouldn't eat so much. Right. I see. And uh, the lateral hypothalamus is then accordingly uh, shushed. Yeah. And you eat less. Interesting. And obviously, when you have low leptin, the the arcuate picks that up, produces some different peptides, what we call orexigenic peptides. Yeah. Uh, neuropeptide Y, MPY, and a guti-related peptide, AGRP. And those, again, act on um, 
the lateral hypothalamus, and they have the opposite effect. Makes sense. Yeah. So I see the words anorexogenic and orexogenic, and I see I take the word anorexia from that. Uh huh. So how's that all linked then? What do those words mean? Anorexogenic, in terms of these peptides, just mean that they suppress appetite. Oh, okay. And orexins, yeah, or orexogenesis is maybe a word I've just made up. But orexogenic peptides mean they just stimulate appetite. Okay. So that's all those words mean in this context. And I shouldn't com- comment outside of this context. All right. Just interested. I just interested in derivations yeah. of words, but I see the link to anorexia now. Yes. Good. Yeah, it's, right. Look at all this stuff you're learning today. That's why I'm here. All right. So an important thing, a uh, little aside about these peptides, AGRP which is an orexigenic peptide, and alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone, which is an anorexigenic peptide, yeah. both act at the same receptor. Yeah. Melanocortin receptor number four. Melanocortin receptor number four. That's the one. All right. And alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone activates that receptor and AGRP blocks it. Okay. And the reason this is important is because mutations in MC. 4R, as we shall call it, are the most common genetic cause of inherited obesity. <laughs> uh, according to, <coughs> excuse me, some eminent researchers in the field, mm-hmm. uh, one to two point five percent, between one and two point five percent, of people with a body mass index of greater than thirty mm-hmm. have pathogenic, i.e., I assume non-functional, mutations in MC4R. That's very interesting. Yeah, and I'm sure our students found that very interesting as well. Because I, the reason why I know is because their their attitude towards obese people changes as they go through the course, as they understand more of the right. biology behind obesity. Well, it's 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 interesting to note that uh, although it is the most common genetic variant associated or genetic cause, if we like, of obesity, mm. it's still not a lot of people. It's still pretty low. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are a few other genes. There are mutations in leptin. We'll come on to that in a second. The leptin receptor. And uh, POMC, propiomelanocortin, which is the precursor peptide from which alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone is made. Uh, mutations and all those things are associated with obesity, but by and large, uh, most cases of obesity are not associated, certainly not associated with a simple genetic cause. Yeah. And um, uh, may not have you know a genetic basis at all. Yeah, really. sure. It's just... Crisps are too easy to get hold of. As, we shall, as we shall see later, yes. And TVs are getting bigger. Yeah, not getting any better though, are they? The TVs or the programming? The programming, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that's okay. Well, it's clear to me then that if we know what um, causes all this, surely, surely we can just make obese people thin <laughs> by giving them leptin, right? Yeah, well, actually, it's yes. Yes, indeed. That was, that. that was a. a a eureka moment, I think, for persons working in obesity when leptin was discovered, uh, first discovered in mice, and it was subsequently found that there were people who had a genetic leptin deficiency. Yeah. They had very severe early onset childhood obesity, um, very serious obesity, yeah. but was eminently treatable with leptin. So people with a genetic leptin deficiency, you give them leptin, their body mass index goes down and their obesity is treated, if not completely cured. So it works? 
it works, yes. And, and, uh, and drug companies and obesity researchers were very excited. And yeah. vast amounts of money were spent uh, on leptin and leptin-like drugs uh, to, to cure obesity. And it was found not to work. Oh. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh. Uh, it turns out that most obese people have levels of leptin that we would expect them to. Oh. Okay, so persons who, who have high, body, uh, high levels of body fat have high levels of leptin. Persons who are obese have very high levels of leptin. But somewhere along the line, that leptin isn't being listened to. Oh, okay. It's a bigger problem then. It's a bigger problem, yes. Ah. So I don't know if you could... Well, Leptin-resistant might be a term you could use, but certainly the concept is, you know, leptin's doing what it's supposed to. Or leptin-insensitive or... Leptin-insensitive, like yeah. Mm. Yeah, so leptin is important for normal regulation of appetite, but in terms of treating obesity and understanding obesity, it's less important than we thought it was. It's um, never that easy, is it? No, that's why we're here, isn't it? If it was that easy, then it'll be fixed. Wouldn't be a medical problem. We wouldn't need to teach people about it. Yes. Uh, There are other adipostats. I don't need to think that it's only leptin. Right, yeah, sure. Insulin is also an adiposity signal. Ah, good. Blood levels go up and down in relation to bloody fat. They also obviously go up and down in relation to blood glucose. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you infuse insulin into the brain, it decreases feeding. Insulin also acts on the hypothalamus to cause the release of the various peptides. So it does a lot of the same uh, things yeah. that leptin does. Okay. But again, uh, people who are obese generally, not generally, very often have elevated levels of insulin. So insulin is doing what it's supposed to do, but it's not being listened yeah, to. Yeah, sure. What else can I tell you? Any others? Any other dipper stats? Uh, none that we need worry about right now. Okay. We should mention uh, another very important uh, peptide hormone, which is ghrelin. Right. Uh, if you are hungry at this moment. Yeah, I'm getting hungrier now. And as the time wears on, you're getting hungrier. Your levels of ghrelin are going up. Oh, really? Yes. Mm. Ghrelin is produced by the stomach. It's regulated by calorie intake. Before a meal, levels go up. Once you eat, the levels go down. Ah. It also acts in the alkyl nucleus. And it's really the major, if not the only, endogenous hunger signal that has thus far been identified. Okay. At least acutely acting, anyway. Is that carbohydrate? Is that sugar linked again? Glucose linked? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, in, it's a recent story, ghrelin. It's only discovered very recently. It's been a It's been. People do it. Think it does lots of very important things, and I suspect the textbook uh, picture of what ghrelin does has yet to emerge. So, okay, we won't spend a lot of time talking about it, uh, other than to say that in obese people, the levels of ghrelin are reduced. So worth PubMeding if you want to find out latest info. Yeah, how do you spell yeah. it? G H R E L I N. Okay. Okay, so it's, the levels are reduced in obesity, as you would expect. You know, people don't need to eat, have a lot of, uh, have not much ghrelin, uh, but yet... They still eat. They are still obese, shall we say. All right. So were I to let you eat right now... Yeah. You would, were I to let you eat to satiation... <laughs> yeah. You would become full. Yes. 
we should spend a moment or two talking about what would happen in your brain were we to allow that to happen. Okay. Uh, so I've had my sandwiches, a bit of a flapjack. Flapjack, Banana, eh? maybe a yogurt. A flapjack, there's a lot of sugar in a flapjack, Arlen. I didn't see you as a flapjack man. Oh, I need a lot. Well, when I'm training, I need a lot of carbohydrate. And a flapjack is one of the best ways of getting that energy back in. I train twice a day, so, you know, you got to get... You finished one training session, you got to get the sugar back in for the next one. I see. And you choose flapjacks over chocolate? Yeah, I don't know. My brain doesn't like chocolate. My Something wrong with your brain. Well, it used to like chocolate. And then right. when I'm training, it's just it's just too sweet. And then when I'm, you became fit and healthy? Yeah, no, there's no conscious choice. It's not a case of I'll avoid chocolate. I still eat loads of biscuits, which is probably worse. Oh, sure. Yeah, but chocolate, no, I eat, you know, half a Twix and, yeah. It's really not chocolate, off. though, is it, a Twix? Well, it's, I don't know. It's got chocolate on it. Okay, all uh, right. You know, the idea of buying a uh, a double-decker, oh, no, oh, I couldn't do that. You couldn't do that? No, half a Kit Kat's too much for me. I all don't right. know why, it's not, it's just, it's the way my palate's changed. Yeah, you know, my palate, my brain seems to like more lettuce now, more. <laughs> salad and bananas right, and stuff. For the students that actually attended the lecture, they're now going to appreciate that the later parts of the lecture where we talk about lettuce and cakes and chocolate are not going to work with Sam. Well, no, they probably still we'll work. Just, we'll, we'll, re- we'll rephrase it in terms of flapjacks. How about that? Yeah, see, if you give me a choice between flapjack and something else, then, okay, you know. All right, so... That's kind of part of conscious choice and it's tasty. My brain likes it. Is it conscious choice or is it just your hypothalamus? Is there such a thing as free will? For another podcast. Yeah. No, let's not do that podcast. <laughs> All right. So were we to let you eat your flapjacks and yes. your sandwiches and whatever else yeah. it is? That oh, I'm feeling much better already. Just thinking about it. Yeah. Then uh, lots of things would happen to tell your ventromedial hypothalamus that it was time to get active and stop you eating. Okay. To prevent you going above your set point. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about a couple of them. We actually think we'll only talk about one of them, the most important one, really, which is the simulation of the vagus nerve. Eee. Are you excited about the vagus nerve? Yeah, a bit of anatomy, I understand there. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing what it what it does for some people, doesn't it? Vagus nerve, okay. So we're talking parasympathetic now. Sure, yeah. Right. Um, stimulation of the vagus nerve produces the sensation of satiety. Right. What exactly satiety is, is really a philosophical question. It means um, you feel fulfilled. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that it is. Right. Because you don't necessarily have to feel physically full to stop eating. You can be satiated without being full. You have those days where you spent four or five hours on the bike and then you go to no, the... No, no, not me, Sam. <laughs> one has those days on one's bike when one has spent four or five hours and then one goes to an all-you-can eatery and you can just eat and eat and eat and eat. So you can physically eat a ridiculous amount of food, whereas some days you have sandwich, banana, and you feel satiated. Maybe we should have done this with a normal person. Sorry. <laughs> You're ordinary. No, I was just addict. trying to... You were saying about feeling full, physically right. full, and you're quite right. You can eat an enormous amount of food without feeling... Physically full. Physically but do you full. feel satiated? Yeah. That's the key Eventually. Thing. I think we'll, we will consider satiety really as being the absence of hunger. Yeah. And if, I'm, what I'm saying is it varies on days yeah. depending oh, what you've yeah. been doing. Yeah. Which is very strange. How does it know? We don't need to worry about that. Okay. All right. So your vagus nerve, stimulation of, reduces your hunger, shall we say. Right. Good. It is, it is uh, activated by the simple physical distension of the stomach. Easy as that. Yeah. Stomach gets too full and it 
stimulates the vagus nerve to tell your hypothalamus, look, I'm getting a bit full. I'm merely a bag of muscle. And if you put more into me, I may become damaged. So you should stop eating. Is there a bit of a delay on that? Because all the diets say, you know, eat slowly. Um, well, or chew your food at least. I, it's not instantaneous. Generally, most processes that involve peptides are a little bit slower. Oh, okay. Than those involving, you know, things like glutamate. Um, but yeah. But it's just that eat, fill your stomach, it gets distended. Yes, it is one of the signals. Should we say? Right. Okay. Um, eating fatty foods, eating any food, but especially fatty food, causes the production of cholecystokinin. Right. CCK, yeah, which also stimulates the vagus nerve and tells the hypothalamus to stop eating. Ah, so there are a couple of things, at least, which operate at the back end of the feedback loop to to close it off, and okay, reduce hunger. I do like fatty foods. I'm glad fat is good for endurance athletes. <laughs> Sam likes fatty foods because they're good for endurance athletes. <laughs> Maybe it is a choice. Is it a choice? I don't know. I like fatty foods because they taste good. <laughs> I just shovel it in. I don't taste it. <sighs> oh, dear. Maybe you should be asking me, actually, these questions. <laughs> All right, okay. so that's a really a, uh, a very simple whiz-bang summary. That I can relate to. That... Uh, at this stage, in the first year of our uh, graduate entry medical program, we really need to know about appetite and satiety. Okay, those are the key things you need to know about. The different regions of the hypothalamus, the peptides produced by those regions of the hypothalamus, and the circulating signals, the leptin, etc., which uh, convey the information to the hypothalamus to allow it to regulate your appetite. So now I know why I don't just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. Yes. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, though, as as we've touched upon, most of that circuitry, most of those systems, aren't really um, aren't really really dysregulated in obesity. Okay? Most most obese people have the levels of leptin and insulin, etc., that we would expect, um, but they're still obese. Mm. So. Naturally, as scientists, the question arises, well, why is that? Why is that? <laughs> Very good. All right, so to try and explain why that might be, uh, I'm going to offer you a hypothetical choice. Yeah. Okay, knowing that you don't like chocolate and have thus destroyed... Oh, it's not I don't like chocolate. No, 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 no. we're, we're going to tailor, tailor this to you personally. Those of you who are listening who are normal and like chocolate, <laughs> substitute chocolate for flapjack in right. this question. But we're going to ask Sam to uh, make a dietary choice were I to offer you in your hungry state yeah. a okay. choice between this very dry piece of bread, which mm. I bought in this morning, having left it out overnight for you. Just like the ducks would like that. Yeah, but they'd have to soak it in water. <laughs> um, so were you to be offered the choice between this very dry piece of bread and a delicious flapjack? Flapjack. Okay. What if I were to tell you that you could have as much of the bread as you wanted and still only one flapjack? Flapjack. Okay. So, calorifically, I'm giving you the choice between all the calories that you could possibly need today, admittedly yeah. not in a particularly um, vitamin-rich source, co-op white bread, uh, and a flapjack, you're still going to choose the flapjack. Flapjack. Yeah, I see. It works. It works. <laughs> see, I'm not that un unusual. Okay, now, for most people, this, well, for the vast majority of people, the same thing is true. 
Okay, for most normal people, we would offer them a choice between chocolate and bread, and they would choose the chocolate. Mm. And this is, uh, according to some currently popular theories, the root of why uh, there is an obesity epidemic in certain Western societies. Yeah. Why would we go for something tasty rather than something it, useful, evolutionarily? It's, uh, it's not necessarily tasty and as you as I, I told you it's not even necessarily a, a conscious calculation of the calories you know i've offered you the choice yeah and you've picked the tasty energy dense but in terms of total calories uh, fewer calories you know you yeah. the flapjack um the theory is that evolutionarily we are trained to uh consume highly palatable foods Right. Palatability being uh, a fairly woolly concept, but basically anything that's delicious, chocolate, flapjacks, chips, crisps, mm. stuff that's chock full of bad things, is generally highly palatable and um, on all the prohibited list of all the diets that you may ever take. Yeah. And you're, you're programmed is the word. You are... Evolutionarily trained to uh, consume those because in days of yore, when we were all living in caves, um, if you had the opportunity to consume a food that was very calorie-dense, oh, okay, uh, like whatever Stone Age man ate instead of chocolate and flapjacks, then it was obviously in your best interest to do so. Okay, so you go for something sweet. Yeah, something, yeah, As something with the, the maximum uh, short-term calorie intake. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, this is a very, uh, again, a very evolutionarily old trait, okay? It's in any living organism's best interest to maximize its energy intake in this short period of time before thus minimizing the amount of time it's exposed to predators, the amount of energy it has to expend to get the food, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So our brains are hardwired to seek out highly palatable foods and consume them, and there is... There are various circuits in our brain which uh, allow us to learn about the availability of uh, so-called rewards, learn about where they are, how to get them, and how to go about getting them again. Asda's, aisle two, that sort of thing. Aisle two? Asda, yeah, chocolate biscuits. Oh, Asda, aisle two, yeah. (laughs) Yes, so that is actually a very good example. Uh, The part of your brain that is involved in this learning... uh, it's very simply the, we'll call it the reward circuit. It's the mesolimbic dopamine system. It's the what? Mesolimbic Meso- dopamine system. Mesolimbic yes. dopamine yes. system. Okay. There are other, it is, there are other regions associated with that, but uh, at least for now, um, in terms of the spiral curriculum, we'll start with the mesolimbic system and we'll build on them in later weeks. Um, there's a part of your brain called the ventral tegmental area. Yeah. It is one of the few regions of your brain that produces the neurotransmitter dopamine. Ah. And it releases dopamine in various important uh, reward centers in your brain. Yeah, I like dopamine, don't I? Uh, Do you? Probably. Well, it's a controversial area whether or not (laughs) dopamine... Some people used to think that dopamine was liking, dopamine was pleasure, and that having more dopamine was 
straightforward linear relationship with feeling better about life. There you go. That's my limited understanding. Yeah. It. I think the current picture is that it's a little bit more complicated than that. Damn it. Dopamine is more about learning about the things that make you feel good. Ah, okay. And also learning about the things that make you feel bad. Yes. No. So that does ring a bell, actually. So when you when you first eat your chocolate bar or your chocolate biscuit or your flapjack, let's talk about the flapjack. When you first eat your flapjack in Asda, uh, well, I paid for it. Okay. So I'm coming out of Asda. Let's let's Got me imagine. Flapjack. Let's imagine you eating your very first flapjack. Oh right. You've never had a flapjack before. Yeah. Okay. And you eat the flapjack. Yeah. And it's delicious. Yeah. And your brain makes dopamine. Ah. And the reason it makes that dopamine is because it's receiving, you know, the various hormonal and sensory inputs to say that was very palatable, it was highly delicious, we should do that again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Kim tells you, I bought that flapjack in Asda. Yeah. Okay, so you go to Asda. Hunt out the flapjack. Hunt out, she shows you where the flapjack is and you buy one and you experience the same delicious, uh, as far as you're concerned, uh, food experience. And over time, as you repeat that experience over and over again, that what the dopamine does is help you learn that the flapjacks are in Asda, and it helps you learn whereabouts in Asda they are and how much money you have to pay for them, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And that's really, uh, very simply, the, the primary function of dopamine in this I can see how that would be really, really beneficial. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dopamine is also released in, in uh, other parts of the brain associated with learning, Mm. And also with with uh, control of behavior, things like the prefrontal cortex. But we'll we'll talk about those in detail in some later weeks. Okay. So uh, basically, the brain, your brain, treats palatable foods as a reward. Yeah. Okay. And if you block dopamine signaling, then uh, you reduce the consumption of palatable food. Okay. And whereas you have less of an effect on Things like your co-op economy, dry white sliced bread. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Makes okay. sense? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's worth spending a moment or two also to talk about opioids. I know you're a big fan. Definitely like those. Uh, most people do. Yeah. They make people feel good. Especially when running. Yes. Especially mm. when when running. And Which I still can't do. Four weeks now. Uh, in normal people's cases... Uh, the consumption of highly palatable or sugary foods will ah, also produce. Um, really? Yeah, it's so, a little less clear cut than, than perhaps the dopamine story, but yeah, opioids uh, are involved in this learning about things that are good and are perhaps more directly associated with making you feel good. In some people, you said? No, I think in most people. Okay. Yeah, I mean, your flapjack will be associated with the production of uh, endorphins in some way. Okay. Okay. Uh, the way that, well, the one of the ways that uh, endorphins, endorphins are a type of opioid, one of the ways they work is to increase the production of dopamine. Right. And again, if you block the actions of endorphins, then you block the consumption of palatable foods. So most people, most mammals, given the choice between, say, flapjacks and bread, will eat flapjacks. Yeah. If you block uh, the actions of endorphins, then the amount of food that's that's ingested is not particularly affected, but the the dramatic preference for the flapjack and the palatable food is lost. Really? So it becomes just about simple calories. Huh. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. 
And uh, recovering or attempting to detoxify heroin addicts uh, will often stuff themselves full of, of sugary sweets in a desperate attempt to boost production of, ah. uh, of natural opioids or at least, you know, alleviate the withdrawal. So the brain naturally just does that? Yeah, most people's brain naturally, when you stuff it full of, of fruit pastels, will uh, produce opioids. That make no, I mean, it's um, it's not a conscious decision to eat loads of sweets. It's not part of the process of oh, coming I, down off drugs, or is it? Is it something the brain just says, eat lots of sweets? Uh, it's not clear. I don't know that the average heroin addict makes a conscious decision based upon a detailed knowledge of the biology of endorphins. I'm sure they know a lot more about opioids and opiates than most people. I thought they might have had a pamphlet. Uh, I I don't know how widespread that practice is, but I know that it certainly is. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's an urban legend, but it's certainly something we are told. Yeah, as neuroscientists, yeah. it's an interesting idea. Yeah. So we've 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 covered our thrifty genotype. I think it's worth you know it's summarizing that there's a theory about why people become obese. We're hardwired to treat very calorie dense foods as as rewards. Our brain naturally learns about them, is motivated to go and get them, whether we like it or not. In the olden days, that would obviously help keep us alive. Yeah. But in the current uh, current Western society, it's actually very easy to attain, obtain very palatable yeah, calorie-dense yeah. foods. But in fact, in many ways, easier than it is to obtain you know, your salads. And so, um, you know, people are hardwired to go and eat them, yeah, whether yeah. they like it or not. And they're available to you eat them. And, and they're, they're available and they're actually cheaper than anything else. So, yeah, you go out and yeah. eat them. Okay. Um, a couple of other, well, one other, uh, one other thing we should mention or touch upon in terms of regulating our food intake is serotonin. We all know about serotonin as a regulator of, of depression and mood and all the rest of it. Mm. Mood is uh, considered by many to be a very important part of appetite and food intake and food choice. The type of mood you're in determines what sort of um, food you're going to eat. Uh, it's not textbook stuff. This you know, it's not it's not really known and understood at a commonly accepted. Uh, level, but it is known that um, that treating people with a serotonin reuptake inhibitor uh, promotes satiety. Right. Okay. okay. So it's really the only currently approved diet dietary drug that works on. Uh, the neurological basis of appetite and food intake is a serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor called sibutramine. Mm -hmm. And it, it is described as increasing feelings of satiety and reducing the metabolic suppression that occurs with weight loss. Okay, so it makes you feel satiated, so you're not as hungry, so you don't eat as much. Yeah. And then when you try and lose weight, uh, normally... When you try and lose weight, your metabolism compensates because it's trying to keep you at a set point. Yeah. So your metabolic rate goes down. Yeah. And thus, the more weight you lose, the harder it is to lose more. Ah. Sibutramine prevents that from happening. Okay. So it keeps your metabolic rate at maybe at approximately the same rate that it is, you know, when you start start trying to lose weight. Yeah. And so you lose weight more easily. It's 
I'd love to be able to describe to you the detailed neuroscience about how serotonin and noradrenaline uh, are involved in regulating food intake, but I I don't think anyone really agrees at any great level or understands at any great level how that works. Ah, okay. Yeah. It's an when, interesting idea. When you when you eat a carbohydrate rich meal, your levels of serotonin in your hypothalamus go up. Yeah. They also go up in uh anticipation of a meal and they peak during the meal. So one theory is that just increasing hypothalamic serotonin levels by pharmacological treatment with cybutramine will reproduce that feeling of, of being at the peak of a meal and so you're less likely to eat. Yeah, I mean there's there's two aspects of mood here, isn't there? There's I'm grumpy as hell when I'm hungry. Right. When I haven't eaten. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm grumpy. Me too. And also when a woman's just been dumped apparently she eats lots of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Only a woman, though. Apparently. Well, you don't see blokes doing on the telly, do you? I've eaten Ben and Jerry's on occasion. Yeah, but not like a whole day. <laughs> You're twisting this now. <laughs> okay, okay. We probably shouldn't go down that road, shall we? But I was just thinking there are two sides of mood. It's a mood with yes. um, appetite. Yes. It's, One, well, and, and, you, you know, it's the sort of thing that uh, has a very, not tenuous, but it doesn't have a very... Um, developed scientific basis no there's not vast volumes of literature on how serotonin regulates um, mood and thus diet and food intake etc the level that you would be confident in putting in a textbook should we say yeah yeah. but the idea is there the idea is there and this sort of idea that's very easily manipulated by you know popular press and the media and all the rest of it so Mm -hmm. where for our students i think they should just be aware that cybutramine this is serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor increases satiety Reduces metabolic suppression is an effective weight loss treatment. Mm, okay. And leave it there. Yeah, yeah. So that works. It works. It is. Lots of, of drugs that are related to it produce weight loss. So uh, amphetamines. Yeah. Are, um, they increase the abundance of noradrenaline and, and also dopamine. And they are very potent at re- promoting weight loss. Yeah, yeah sure. And maintaining a low weight. They're also, of course, addictive stimulants. Yeah. Uh, it's thought that that the metabolics, the non... Let me get this straight. It's thought that the effects of cybutramine on metabolic suppression, i.e. the reduction of metabolic suppression, double negative, are perhaps more due to its effects on noradrenaline transport, much like amphetamines. Uh, drugs like fluoxetine, Prozac, Mm. also uh, promotes weight loss. Okay. Uh, this thought to be through a more uh, serotonergic mechanism, but fluoxetine uh, isn't isn't as effective as cybutramine. It promotes weight loss, but it's not a great deal, and it's not in everyone. So mm. cybutramine mm. is the, the perfect balance between antidepressants and addictive psychostimulants. <laughs> I see. Good stuff. All right. Yeah, thanks, Phil. I've learned a lot from that. That's very interesting. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I've linked up some anatomy, some biology, biochemistry to uh, some neuroscience I didn't know. And flapjacks. And flapjacks. I think I need some lunch now. Yeah, me too. Well, thanks, Phil. Anytime. Um, any idea what we're going to talk about next? Uh, next, we will talk about neurotransmitters, as promised. And oh, yes. We will also try, I hope, and talk a bit about uh, higher cortical function. Right. For our second year students. Okay. Um, their exams are coming up soon. Their exams are coming up soon, and I know they would 
appreciate some additional learning resources. Okay, excellent. So we'll knock another one out in a few weeks' time then. Yeah. Thanks, Phil. All right. See you soon. See you next time.